right, we're continuing on through our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're going to talk about the subject of adultery uh, in Jesus' religion versus the religion of the Pharisees. So let's now go ahead and uh, open up in a word of prayer. Father, this is going to be a heavy subject. Uh, I pray that you open the minds of your people to understand not only what you say here in a way that the Pharisees would take it, that is to restrict it, but instead in a way that you are trying to communicate to us to where we apply what is said in its fullest sense, take the principle behind what you say and apply it to everything that God might rule over every aspect of our lives and not just part of them. For then you are truly our Lord and King because we desire you to rule over us and we truly belong to your kingdom. Uh, because that is the kingdom to which we uh, we seek to uh, submit ourselves. We thank you for your word, Lord, that we might understand these things, that we might not be lost in them. But I pray that you take off the delusions of our culture that have been placed on us and the delusions of sin and our desire to uh, be apologists for sin uh, because we're trying to justify things that we do or other people that we love that do them. Lord, I pray now that you give us a heart of the Beatitudes, one which comes in humility and and being teachable to your word, uh, desiring to uh, be righteous, being hungry and thirsty for righteousness because we love you and because we love one another. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and read the passage. The passage is going to give us two examples of adultery where the Pharisees, the rabbinic tradition, allows people to commit adultery against the principle, even though it looks like they're not committing adultery because they're not explicitly physically committing adultery uh, in, uh, in, in, you know, in view of the, the rabbis. And so um, let's go ahead and read it. It's two parts. I don't know if we'll get to both parts today. We're at least going to do the first part of it. But it's important to see that there's two examples of this, and they're not the same examples. Some scholars try to take them together, but actually they're, they should be pulled apart in terms of being two different examples of adultery. Starting in verse 27 of chapter 5 of Matthew, You have heard that it was said, you will not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your body parts than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your body parts than that your whole body go into Gehenna. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the matter of pornea, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who has been divorced commits adultery. So again, I don't know if we're going to get to the second part. Let's go back now to the first. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now again, Jesus is not going to contradict the law. He's not saying anything about the law other than the restriction of adultery to just the explicit command versus the implicit principle is pharisaical, it's religious, it's done by people 
who don't love God, don't know God, and don't want God to rule over their entire lives. It's very important. This is in the context of him saying that if you have the righteousness of the Pharisees, if that's the way you interpret the law, and if that's the way you're going to interpret Jesus, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You don't belong to Christ. You don't belong to God. They don't even know you. You don't know them. You don't have a real relationship with them as your Lord. You're your own Lord. You're doing your own thing, and you're trying to be religious in your own way. It's very important that when we enter these things, we understand that that's what's going on because a lot of us are doing the same thing. And we need to be extremely careful about that. So you have heard that it was said, he's going to counter the rabbis here, the Pharisaic tradition. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust uh, in his heart has already committed adultery with her. Now, it's fascinating. We would not necessarily view it that way. We look at it as so much lesser. But I want you to know that the implicit uh, text, the, what's implied here, is that, well, you know, if your right hand makes you stumble, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it to you. For it's better that what? That one part of your body perish than your whole body perish in hell. Now, notice that. That means Jesus is saying, if you lust after a woman, so you desire that person rather than your spouse, uh, you are going to hell. That's what's implied. And so uh, well, we'll get to what the remedy is, obviously. But, but the, the point here, first and foremost, is that it's just as serious as adultery. It doesn't mean, just like we talked about murder last week, it doesn't mean that like if you hate your brother, it's the same thing, so you might as well knife him in the parking lot. Um, it's not the same thing. Jesus isn't saying that it's the exact same action or it has the same consequences and all that sort of thing. It may be more weighty to where you get a worse punishment in hell. But either way, he's saying it's just as bad as adultery. It's considered adultery and you, enough for you to go to hell for it. And his people should not be committing adultery. His people should not be committing murder. And so be real clear, uh, in no way am I saying, oh yeah, you know, uh, or, or is Jesus saying that, you know, uh, if you hate your brother, it's physically the same thing as murder. So, I mean, you might as well have just murdered him. Or if, you know, uh, looking upon a woman is the same thing as actually physically committing adultery with her. So you might as well just do it because it's the same, same thing. That's not the point. The point is, is that these are of the same types of sins. They're all under the category of adultery. They all violate the principle that God is discussing when he commands against adultery or against murder or against lying or whatever it may be. And so because of that, it's against that principle. It has the same punishment, ultimately, not the same punishment in terms of degrees maybe that you might get, but the same punishment in terms of it cuts you off from God, shows that you don't really belong to him, and it means you're going to hell. So it's very important. So what does he mean by this? Let's first and foremost talk about what he just means by it. Well, I think what he means is he's talking about the coveting laws. He's bringing in the coveting law. Because remember, the law isn't just you shall not commit adultery, because the later law is going to say that you're not even to covet anything that your neighbor owns, including his wife. 
And that's being brought in here that if you even covet after the woman, you've already in your head, you've already committed adultery with her, and therefore you're already guilty of adultery, and it shows that you think that's fine and you're going to go to hell. Um, we often apply this to, you know, if you think that someone else is pretty or you, you know, that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about you see a woman who's beautiful and you're like, wow, that's a beautiful woman. Or you see a guy that you think is handsome. You're like, oh, that's a handsome guy. This is not something that's talking about you admiring someone's beauty. That's not, has nothing to do with this. It has to do with more than just looks, but it's part looks are part of it, right? Um, that you look upon someone else and you're like, I, I, would, I want that person. And that person is not your spouse. That's adultery. It doesn't matter why you want that person other than your spouse. You could want them sexually. Uh, you could want them emotionally. You can want them in whatever ways it may be. That's adultery. The desire, whatever the desire may be, physical, emotional, mental, whatever it is that is supposed to be given to your spouse is being taken away in your mind and given to someone else, even if just for a moment. You are to cultivate a desire for your spouse. This is the principle. The principle behind all of this is faithfulness to your marriage, faithfulness to your spouse in terms of how you think, in your thoughts. And so there's, you know, that great thing where the grass is always greener on the other side. And then the great comeback is the grass is always greener where you water it. And so if you are busy thinking about someone else other than your spouse and desiring them, you are committing adultery. You are robbing from your spouse what belongs to them. That's not faithfulness to your marriage. Now, it's really important to understand here that this then would apply to things like pornography. And we know this right away. Like we read it and we're like, okay, well, that, that, there goes pornography. I mean, that, that's clear. But then we don't apply it to other things. And then I want you to notice that it, it's, it's talking about desiring someone other than your spouse. So a single person could just say, well, I'm fine then because I'm, I don't have a spouse. Um, and I'm not lusting after anyone's wife. And so I'm just lusting after other single girls or single guys. And so I'm fine. And that's where we get into trouble because ultimately now what you're doing is you're doing what the Pharisees would do if they were to interpret Jesus. You're limiting it. Remember the principle is be faithful to your spouse. That's not just your spouse you're married to right now. It's your future spouse. The two are to become one flesh. You should be looking for one spouse, one person. The, the, uh, the qualification of an elder is that he be a one-woman man and that a, a woman for, you know, to, to be held in honor, maybe she's a deaconess or whatever it may be, is to be a one-man woman. In, in other words, period, whether you're married or not, what you do today as a single person is to uh, give faithfulness to your spouse in the future. So whatever you do now is adultery if it's not. Now, you might say, okay, well, I, I can kind of see that if I were to have sex with someone or whatever. But I'm talking about even giving your emotions to someone now. Desiring someone who's not going to be your spouse now. Giving all of that in now. When you have no commitment for marriage, 
either an engagement or marriage. This is why dating culture is not, in fact, in line with the Bible at all. It's in line with the sexual revolution. It's in line with paganism. It's in line with hedonism. It's in line with atheism and agnosticism and Eastern religions, which is why you had an influx of Eastern religions come in in the 60s when you had like a big expression of the sexual revolution. Um, because ultimately, paganism allows for that sort of thing. Christianity does not. Because you realize that a dating culture is you what? It's, how, do we, how do we view sexual relationships in our culture? Or romantic relationships. Everything is geared toward the infatuation of the moment and the infatuation of something new. And so as long as I'm infatuated with you, that's the exciting part. So all the rom-coms, you know, even though the girl's with some other guy, uh, that's boring. And, you know, usually some reason is like uh, created so that, oh, we can kind of understand he's not a great guy anyway, blah, blah, blah. And so it's okay. Uh, it's okay for her to run off with this new guy she's infatuated with. It's true love, and that's how we view love and romance and all of that. And ultimately what it does is it trains people to give their emotions, their sexual desire, everything to whoever they're infatuated with in the moment, and then they move on to the next person, and then they move on to the next person, and none of these people are their spouses, except for maybe the last one. And even then, once they get in marriage then, marriage isn't exciting anymore. Sex in marriage isn't exciting anymore because it's not the infatuation phase anymore. And so we are training people to be adulterers so that when they get in marriage, they desire those people that they, they had previously dated and they think back, wow, wasn't that great? And they, they vision those people and uh, having a relationship with those people. And, oh, if only if I had married that person and that person. And we, we create this atmosphere of just absolute adultery so that the spouse never gives his or her full thoughts and full devotion to their spouse. Instead, it's given to someone else, either someone in a previous relationship or someone that you desired before, or, or, or it's a romanticizing of infatuation and looking for someone new. Because your spouse no longer brings those, you know, fuzzy feelings to you. That is all adultery. And if you can't see that, I, I would suggest to you that you've been practicing reading the Bible like a Pharisee. Not like Jesus tells you to read it. So it's very important that we understand that desire here is, epithomia is not just sexual desire. That's the core of it, obviously. Sexual desire. So it would condemn any sort of sexual desire for anyone other than your spouse. But, but let's not act like, I, I've had people come back and say, well, that's sexual desire, but I have more of an emotional relationship with this guy because girls will get attached emotionally or, you know, guys do as well. But that seems to be the first thing for girls in their act of adultery. They have it in their minds, and they fantasize about it, and then they'll maybe have an emotional relationship with another guy. Or maybe they'll be flirtatious. Uh, we've talked before about how modesty in the Bible is not just how you dress. How you dress is part of it, but it's actually communicating to someone who's not your spouse that you are sexually available to them. That you are available to them in a way that only a married couple should be available to one another. And I, would, I say it that way because not just sexually, but part of sexuality being also emotionally and mentally and all of that as well.
You should have no emotional connection or relationship. Some sort of, a, you know, what people call an emotional affair or something. It's like, oh, well, I only had an emotional affair over Facebook or whatever. We just messaged back and forth and da-da-da-da. And I got those infatuating feelings. And yeah, that's adultery. And you have people who are like the Pharisees think, well, you know what? I've been married my whole life and I never went out and committed adultery with someone physically. And I, I stayed that whole, you know... Uh, ocean of chaos away from my house and what a great person I am and yet they have mental affairs in their minds Um, before I turn on the camera I just said to my son this is going to be a heavy one because we're all guilty of all of this and not that everyone does everything that I'm mentioning but that there's there's things that each person has done that are unfaithful to their marriage I can't tell you how many marriages I counsel where one person just doesn't want to have sex with their spouse anymore because they didn't actually cultivate a desire for their spouse. They've cultivated a desire for everyone else and all the other people they used to date and maybe their spouse that they used to date when they had fuzzy feelings, but now they don't have them. And now now they're just left to where they, they just feel dead toward their spouse. They just don't have any desire for their spouse anymore. That's adultery. And unless we, we, we don't see it that way because we're taught, oh, well, adult, we're taught like the Pharisees are taught. That adultery is just you don't have a physical relationship with someone. But we're not taught, no, Jesus is talking about being faithful to your marriage from your very thoughts. So that all the desire that belongs to your spouse is given to your spouse and no one else. And look, this is the area where we're going to fail the most. This is, as I argued in Genesis, this is the original sin. We don't want to use sexuality correctly. We don't want to use our relationships and be in that relationship that God had for us, where the two are one flesh and they're, they're coming together in a life-giving um, uh, embrace. Instead, we want to abuse this gift of sexuality and apply it in ways that are not creational. And don't bring about glory for God and don't bring about life and creation in the world, uh, bringing up the covenant community, but rather destroy it either creationally in an anti-creational way or uh, anti-preservationally. Now, you may think, oh, well, it doesn't do any harm, though. I mean, so if I'm like dating around and I'm just going through different people or whatever, it's not really doing any harm. Uh, Only people who are not married now, I think, can see uh, or, or would, would argue that it doesn't bring harm. I mean, frankly, a lot of people who are married may not see it, although they're, they're seeing the fruit of it. It does bring harm. Uh, anytime that you have given yourself over mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever it may be, to someone else, it's going to bring harm to your marriage. You're robbing someone in your marriage. You're robbing your spouse. Ultimately, you're robbing yourself as well, but you're really doing it against your spouse. We'll talk about this later when we talk about divorce, that ultimately when you sin, the victim is going to be your spouse. You know, everything's fun for you. That's the way it works with sin, right? So like if a murderer kills someone because he really just wants to get his anger out or whatever, he's, he's released his anger and that's great and maybe he can get away with it. There's no harm to him, but obviously the victim has paid the price for his sin. So your spouse pays the price. You're doing evil toward your spouse. It's unjust. It's wicked. And you're going to go to hell for it. 
And again, that's not me. It's Jesus who just said that. And so if, if you think, you know, well, coming out with a conclusion, well, Brian thinks that dating means you're going to hell. I'm saying that you're practicing something that is of an adulterous uh, idea that we merely accept because it's cultural. It's amazing. Allison and I watch these shows, uh, 90 Day Fiance, and there's one that's 90 Day Fiance the other way where they, they uh, you know, it's about uh, people wanting to marry someone from a different culture, usually ours. But... Um, but then you have the other way, which is the Americans go into their culture or whatever. And it's amazing how many cultures, and they're not even Christians, how many cultures think dating is absolutely immoral. You want to know why? Because it's left over from the rest of the world. It's left over from history. Most Dating is in the past hundred years. And yet we think it's normative and we think what's weird is anything but dating. Dating's normal. And we don't quite connect to the fact that we've ruined our people through it. We've ruined relationships, ruined marriages. Um, it's consistent with sexual promiscuity. It's consistent with divorce. It's consistent with the destruction of marriage. And yet, uh, and, and it's psychologically damaging to people. It's emotionally damaging to people. It's physically damaging to people. But, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with it. And you're just some fundamentalist if you think there's something wrong with dating. There are only two, uh, two solid relationships for a woman in the Bible. Either you are single and you're governed by a male in some way, your father or your brother or, or, or what have you, uh, the, the temple or whatever, and you have no relationship with a man that's romantic. Or you're married and you're governed by your husband and you have a romantic relationship with your husband. Those are the only two good relationships in the Bible for a woman to have. The other relationship that women have in the Bible is that of prostitute. They're not governed by any men, and they sleep with more than one person. In fact, you, all you have to do is sleep with one person to be a prostitute, other than your spouse. Uh, to be considered having played the whore, or you know, we, we translate it play the whore, but literally in Hebrew, it's just you became a whore. Um... That's what we're doing in dating. We're training our children. It's okay to uh, go ahead and become a whore, but don't become a whore physically because, you know, we got to observe this whole don't commit adultery thing. And so you want to keep yourself, you know, a physical virgin, but go ahead and give all your emotions over to someone who you don't know is going to be your spouse and go ahead and, you know, you can kiss them and be physical with them in that, those ways. Just don't have intercourse, of course, uh, because then you'll be, you'll be, you know, really, really in violation of the adultery thing. Congratulations, you're a Pharisee and you've trained your children to be children of hell like the, the Pharisees are trained. That is not what the Bible teaches about adultery. You don't give your emotions. You don't give your commitment to anyone who you don't know is going to be your spouse. That's why we talk about courting and it's through the father and it's not by giving your emotions over. And it's not by doing all these other things because you're going through the family to so the father can say, okay, uh, it's, at this point you can go ahead and get engaged and let your emotions run uh, toward marriage with one another. Because now you have a commitment and, you, and you're basically going to be married here. 
And even then, it's not some long engagement, like years long, because you don't want the person emotionally involved in case something happens and the the engagement's cut off. Yet what I'm saying right now is crazy because it would actually save our children emotionally and spiritually and physically and all these things, but it's just not normal because you should just keep doing the same thing we're doing because it seems to be working so well, super well. Marriages are in great condition. Um, People will cite, oh, well, you know, marriages, they're a little bit better than they used to be, right? So they're, they're, they're doing well. No, no, they're not. As someone who counsels people, they're not doing better. People just aren't getting a divorce more because it's not practical for financial reasons or because of the kids or because of those reasons. But they are practically divorced. We'll talk about this more next week when we, we uh, deal with part two. But my point to you is, is that marriages are not intact. And this is a big reason why. So I, I know that, you know, most people are expecting like a sermon on uh, lusting after the girl who walks by you in the supermarket. But you already know that's wrong because this is the way that this has been taught for so long. But who has applied this to dating? Who's applied it to you being emotionally involved with people while you're married? Who's it been, who, who, who has been applying it in terms of true modesty that you're conveying to other people when you're married or they're married that you're sexually available to them or that you're emotionally available to them? Again, anything that belongs to your spouse is somehow available to them. This is why, look, men have a big problem. If you ever hear men comment to their wives, why do you get all gussied up when you go out, but you actually, you know, dress like trash around me? What they're really trying to convey to you is that you actually care more about being sexually attractive to those outside than you do me, and yet I'm your spouse. That should be absolutely reversed. You should dress like garbage, like go ahead and wear the sweats and don't put makeup on when you go out. But when you're here, you should actually get gussied up. I was watching the, this, uh, this review uh, YouTube video of an older film that was instructing women, wives, that they should actually you know, make sure they have their makeup on when their husbands come home because they want to look pretty for their husbands. And of course, our culture hates that. How dare you suggest that? What a ridiculous film that you should act like the woman should actually you know, make herself pretty for you, her spouse. Who are you? She's her own independent person. She doesn't need to look pretty for you. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, wait a minute. One, women do like to be pretty because the cosmetic industry is, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry for a reason. Two, they should try to look pretty and want to look pretty primarily and frankly solely for their spouses. So why, why would we suggest that they should be pretty for anyone else? I'm not saying just, you know, dress like garbage when you go out. My point is, is that we've got it backwards. We're used, to, um, we're used to this culture of adultery. We're used to stealing from our spouses what belongs to them and giving them to everyone else. And this goes to other things too. Look, I can apply this to ministry. Uh, I, look, in ministry, I've had times in my life where I had to look and be like, wow, I am actually taking all my time away from my wife and I'm giving it to ministry. When, when the Bible says you have to do the opposite of that if you're qualified as an elder. And yet, 
all these meetings and all the, you know, I had to, at one time had to keep office hours, which was absurd because no one ever like came in during the day. Um, office hours rather than be home with my wife and spend time with my wife and cultivate that relationship. But they thought, well, you're a good pastor if you're, if you're away from your wife, uh, doing your office hours, doing your stuff, you know, just pouring yourself into ministry. I've known pastors who, who their wives left them because they just don't spend any time with them. Again, that's adultery too. So I don't want to get us locked into just the literal. The literal, well, uh, yeah, if you just literally look at a woman and lust after her because uh, you want to have sex with her, that's adultery. Obviously. Obviously. In fact, Jesus says here, a day, already, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. Remember, heart doesn't mean just the, uh, you know, the physical emotions that you have to have some sort of emotional appeal to the person or, or emotional feelings for the person. Heart means in your head, in your thoughts, in your thinking, in your mind, you entertain adultery and therefore show that you are adulterers. And if you're not repentant of that, then you show that you don't belong to me. Now, just like I said last week, Jesus is not saying you don't belong to me and you're going to hell if you're not perfect. That's not the point. The point is, is that the godliness that we are seeking is far above the mere, well, I don't physically commit adultery. The godliness we're seeking is to be like Jesus Christ, which in his thoughts, I guarantee, were not giving over anything, anything to a woman that didn't belong to him, which means he didn't give his thoughts over to any woman, period, because he was never married. So the standard is Christ. That in fact, if you are not married, you don't give those things to anyone because you're saving them from your, your spouse or you realize that no one's your spouse and therefore um, everyone else is someone else's spouse possibly. And so you don't do anything with them or think any way of them because it doesn't belong to you. How many so-called Christians are going to be ending up before Christ with Christ telling them, I don't know you because they've actually stolen from their brother, their wives, through dating, through being promiscuous. I guarantee there's quite a bit. The writer of Hebrews says, Met not one of you. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Not one of you is to defraud his brother in the matter. Why? Because God's the avenger. You know who the avenger is? The Avenger is the guy who goes out and executes you, kills you for a crime, for a capital crime. God's the one who's going to actually kill you. And how does he kill you? He throws you into hell. That person doesn't belong to you. And if you're dating them, you don't know they belong to you. Until you, they actually have a ring on their finger and you have a commitment, you do not know that person belongs to you. Even in the engagement period, you're not quite sure if that's going to work out. Even though it's, it's more solid you're not totally positive you're going to get married to that person. They don't belong to you until they actually are married to you. Not for sure. And therefore, you are to save your emotions rather than give them over to the people. How many of you have already given over your emotions? Now you can't even evaluate one another correctly. You can't even say, I should be with this person or I shouldn't be with this person. You can't even do it because you've already committed adultery. You've already given them the emotions and you have no idea if this person's your spouse. And in all likelihood, a lot of these people are not your spouse. 
So you're committing adultery over and over again. It doesn't matter that you're physically being pure if you're emotionally committing adultery. Then you're not saving yourself. And again, that doesn't mean, well, you might as well just do the worst things. It's like, no, stop doing all of it. Give your mind to Christ, purify your mind in that way, and save yourself for your spouse. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many people's houses I've been over. This is, this is going to deal with married couples, but that, you know, there'll be something on TV and let's say, you know, a girl in a bikini comes on and the guy's in front of his wife. But even if it wasn't in front of his wife is like, wow, look at that girl. Wow. I'd like to hook up with her. And I'm thinking like, are you kidding me? You think that's appropriate? It's totally fine to be like, oh, that's a pretty girl. That's different than acting like you're lusting after the woman in front of your wife. Or again, even if your wife's not there. And you're saying it to the boys or whatever it may be. I've had that happen numerous times with married men. I don't know why they think that's okay, but clearly they don't, they've never read this. There are multiple ways. We could just go on and on and we should. Why? Because the righteousness of the kingdom is looking for God to rule over us in every way from the inside out, not just in specific ways to where we can put a wall around that and then get away with what our flesh wants to do. Because that's what we'll really do when we're Lord of ourselves. When we worship the self, that's what we're going to do. Because we don't want to go to hell, we're going to put a little wall around adultery and say, okay, well, I'm not specifically doing adultery, so that's fine. Uh, Now I can actually commit adultery in all these other ways because God didn't explicitly tell me not to. Jesus is saying God did tell you not to. He doesn't need to be explicit about it. It's represented by the law. Don't commit adultery. He doesn't need to go into all the examples for it. If you loved him, you would say to yourself, now what is adultery and where does it apply and how can I rid my life of it in all aspects? Notice what he says now and the seriousness of this crime because we don't take it seriously because it's, we're used to it. We think it's normal and it's no big deal. So like sexual sins are diminished in our culture. I mean, after all, they're not harming anyone, right? Um, of course, uh, ironically, is that they actually do a lot of harm. <laughs> and, and the Bible actually calls them harm. If you remember back in Genesis, it calls them Hamas. Hamas uh, meaning chaos. Or literally, it's, it's really referring to things that do harm toward humanity. Uh, you know, people who make arguments about homosexuality, well, it doesn't bring harm to anyone. It's like, what do you mean? It brings harm to humanity. If everyone were to practice homosexuality, the human race would be gone. The world would turn back to a state of chaos. It's the work of the devil. All non-procreative sex is that way. All sexuality that's outside the marriage with your spouse is that way. It's all evil. God doesn't need to explicitly go through every single one to tell you that they're wrong. But we become, we become used to it because it's normative. Our culture has wanted to normalize sexual morality. It wants to normalize adultery. And what I'm trying to say to you is that even in the more sanctified versions that you have in the church, It's just Satan normalizing adultery still. 
You might think, oh, it's not as bad as the world, though. Look how bad the world is. And this is the problem with evangelicalism, is that its standard is constantly looking at the world rather than Christ and the word of God as the standard. So if I look to the world and I'm like, I'm not as bad as that, now I seem like a Christian. But then when I look to Christ and the word of God, I'm like, well, okay, well, now I don't. And I need to repent. And I need to pursue Christ. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have a seven-step program for you to deal with this because it's the primal sin that we're going to have to deal with every day. This is it, our sexuality. And we're going to fail probably every day, but I would encourage you then to repent every day and get back on the horse and pursue Christ and look for ways to avoid it next time. And if you fall next time, do the same thing and pursue Christ but don't say to yourself in a justifying manner, ah, what I'm doing is fine. I don't think, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I, I, I disagree. I disagree. I, th- I think it's fine. Um, no one cares if you disagree. I have people tell me this all the time. Well, I don't believe in hell. Okay, well, you don't need to believe in it. You're still going there. You don't need to believe, as though it magically disappears because you don't believe in it. As though it somehow becomes untrue because you just disagree. No one cares if you disagree. In fact, I expect you to disagree. Your flesh wants its own lordship. It doesn't like what's being said because it's restricting. Um, The word of God, godliness and obeying Jesus and loving God and loving your neighbor is restricting on the flesh. It's oppressive. To the flesh. That's why we don't like it. That's why this constant like, oh, that's legalism. No, it's not legalism. Your flesh is crying out. I feel restricted and I want free. That's what's going on. There's nothing legalistic about expanding the moral law and saying, hey, you know what? That does harm to the woman that I'm dating. I'm not going to date then. That does harm to my sisters in Christ. I'm not going to do that. Why is that legalistic? It's love. That does harm toward my spouse. I'm not going to do that. Well, that sounds legalistic. No, it doesn't. It sounds like love. That does harm towards humanity. And that's not what God wanted me to do with my sexuality. Well, that sounds legalistic. No, it sounds like love for God. If you're painting love for God as legalism, I'd argue again, stop here, go back to the beginning. I think you need to be saved. If you look at the word of God and all you see is law, legalism, restriction, and not love, you've misunderstood how to read it. Because love looks at the adultery law and says, okay, I don't want to harm anyone. I don't want to steal from my spouse what belongs to them. I don't want to ruin my marriage. I don't want to ruin my kids. I don't want to ruin uh, anyone I might come to contact of the opposite sex. I don't want to ruin other people. I don't want to ruin the world, and I don't want to dishonor God. And I want to be an image of God that, that falls in line with why he made me his image. And I want to be an instrument of God for life. That's what love does. Love of God and love of others. Love of Christians. Love for self says, I want to do this. I want to do that. And I don't want anyone restricting me otherwise. Not even God himself. But I don't want to be in, you know, 
in, 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 in a sort of antagonistic relationship with God, of course, because I, I don't want to go to hell. So I'll just draw little lines around the law and say, oh, this is just what it means and only that and nothing else. And I'll then say, well, God, you know, the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn that. We talked about this last week as well. It's like, show me a verse where it explicitly says that. Show me a verse before Jesus says this, that adultery is in your mind. And you can say, well, in the coveting law. It's like, okay, well, you, you got that one. I don't know about the murder thing before, but let, let's say, show me a verse before Jesus says this that applies to um, you, you know, men with a single woman. Because in the Old Testament, it doesn't. But obviously the adultery law then is expanded by Jesus to mean either partner. Because in adultery in the Old Testament, it only involved a married woman. If you were a man and you wanted to marry another woman, you could. If you were a man and you wanted to go, uh, you know, sleep with a prostitute or whatever, God didn't like it, but he didn't outlaw it. You could lust after all sorts of single women because they weren't married. You can't do that in the New Testament because the ultimate principle was be faithful to your spouse. The two become one flesh. The two become one flesh. Jesus is going to interpret the original thing as two because there's only two there. They become one flesh. That's what marriage is really about. And their faithfulness to that includes then both man and woman. doesn't matter if the woman's married or not. You can commit adultery either way. So what, it, what, what is this, the seriousness is conveyed in this way. It's better to rip your right eye out than to actually, if it's causing you to stumble, than for your whole body to go into hell. Notice here the idea is resurrection because the idea is that what goes into life is your body. You're not getting a different body. This is it. This is why we sanctify this body because this body is going to be saved. And Jesus is saying, it's better to pluck out your eye and, and that perish than your whole body to perish. Now, if you're getting a different body, it wouldn't matter uh, or anything, but obviously you're not. It's this body. Then he says, cut off your right hand. Now, the right is likely, uh, the right eye and the right hand are likely you know, thought of as the good eye, the good hand or whatever. Uh, the, most people use their right hands, uh, even in the ancient world. And so... Um, if, if it makes you stumble, even your right hand. Now, it may actually be euphemistic. Some people think that this might be a reference toward masturbation in terms of uh, the hand doesn't, isn't really the hand. Hand is often used for the sexual organ in Scripture and in the ancient world. Um, and, and it might be euphemistic in that regard. And, uh, and you know, you have the, the, the example of origin taking this literally. The point is not, hey, yeah, gouge out your eye and cut off your sexual origin or organ, <laughs> origin organ. Um, but instead, the idea, because, I mean, obviously, that's not going to really stop adultery in the end. You can be emotionally involved with someone still then. The point is, is if you're to go to the absolute extreme in order to stop this, then you know what you should do? Repent. That's a much lesser extreme. If Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to go to hell unless you cut, off your, cut out your eye or cut off your sexual organ, maybe you know, he's saying ultimately that, well, then you can go ahead and repent so you don't go to hell. Find ways to stop doing it. Set your life up in such a way to where you're not cultivating adultery, but you're cultivating 
faithfulness toward your spouse. Spend more time with your spouse. Uh, Pour yourself more into your spouse. But even in your thoughts, give your spouse your thoughts in terms of your romantic thoughts and who you desire to be married to. And yeah, even if it's rough and and you've lost that or um, you don't desire your spouse, you can cultivate that again. And all is not lost. All is not at an end simply because things have stopped. You can start that again. You can cultivate those things again. You can water that grass again to where that grows green. You don't have to then dream about some other field. Um, so Jesus uses what's called this, uh, the, the Tob Spruch, the, um, the, it's better this is better than that. And it's a common construction that you have in scripture. Um, it's better that you do this horrific thing to yourself than to commit this sin. So you know what? Maybe don't commit the sin. And if you do commit the sin, repent of it. But don't justify yourself. Don't say, oh yeah, I just disagree. That's you justifying yourself and you're going to end up in hell that way because you will end up before Christ and he will say to you, I am self-evidently not your Lord because you practice lawlessness. You did your own law. You did what was right in your own eyes. Again, that's what people do. They have their own list. Some of it's taken from scripture. Some of it's taken from Jesus. But ultimately, it's, it's manipulated to where it's their list and their flesh can still get around it and do things that they want to do. The whole principle of adultery has to do with faithfulness to marriage. And therefore, we're going to see in the principle to come, that is when he talks about divorce and remarriage, that the principle is faithfulness to your spouse. And so divorce and remarriage, of course, is adultery, no matter what. But we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, as of now, uh, we need to look at this passage again in the religion of Christ, as Christ being our Lord, in the framework of loving God and loving one another. And it will expand then into every aspect of our lives. But if we're only looking at it as like, well, I don't really want to do that. And I, I don't want to fall into legalism. And I, I don't want to you know, have something oppress me. Again, it's your flesh being oppressed. Not, not anything else. This is liberating. How much better would your marriage be if you had not dated around? If you had not been promiscuous? If you had not given your heart to people who were not your spouse? Don't tell me this is legalistic and restricting. What you've done is restricting and damaging and destructive to your marriage. Realize that. Repent today. Don't teach your children to do the same thing. And if you're in relationship right now, get out of those relationships where you don't have a commitment, a real one. Get out of the relationships where you're giving your emotions to someone else that you don't even know is your spouse. Stop doing that. Let roads lead to marriage and commitment and faithfulness today. Or don't be in a relationship at all. But preserve your mind and preserve your heart for the one that God has preserved for you. And hopefully that's, that person is also preserving themselves for you. Well, that's how I think we should read this first uh, command that dealing with adultery. Again, as you, you notice, we're going through the Ten Commandments, right? Matthew will go through the Ten. We've dealt with like bearing false witness earlier. There's murder involved and the slander and things like that. 
Um, now, adultery, we'll talk about uh, lying. There's going to be, uh, he's going to mention, you know, honoring your father and mother later, little discussions of the Sabbath, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, command to have no other gods before him and idols. And all of that's going to be addressed in Matthew. So he's going to be giving the Ten Commandments again, along, in the fr- along with in the framework of uh, love, love of God and love of neighbor, as evidence that you are a true disciple of Christ versus someone who's a mere professor and, uh, and not really going to be saved. And so very important that we understand how to read the law in that framework of love and that this is about expanding it to every part of our being. It's the leaven being put in the, the dough as we have a relationship with Christ, as we submit to Christ, and then that lordship goes through all out. The righteousness of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God goes all throughout within us. It's the, the mustard seed being planted in us that becomes the giant tree. I know that we'll look at those in chapter 13. Those are historically just taken out of context and, and uh, applied to, as though they're talking about like the gospel or something being preached. And it's like, no, in the context of Matthew, it's talking about God ruling over every aspect of your being as opposed to the Pharisees who want to restrict God's rule over their lives. And so, again, we'll look at those when we come along. But ultimately, that's how we need to read this. We need to read it in light of love, uh, love for God, and love for our spouse within the covenant community. Very important uh, to do in order to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and bow in a word of prayer now. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, It convicts us in every way. we are all guilty of this in one way or another, Lord. We could, we could all pick out the things we're not guilty of and act like we're great people. But in some way, somehow, I'm positive that everyone, married or unmarried, is likely guilty of adultery. I pray that you forgive us for this sin. Help us. Help us become people who are faithful, who are life givers to our spouses, who give to our spouses what belongs to them. Help us to take it back from everyone else. Let us give it only to our spouse and no one else. That's what makes this relationship so special. And that's what gives it a great picture of our relationship with you. Without that, it's, just polyg- it's, it's not just uh, polygamy, it's, it's uh, polytheism. The worship of numerous gods. Let us not convey that in our marriage relationship, Lord. Let us not convey that in any relationship we have, but rather let us convey the monotheism, the faithfulness, the love, the covenant love that you have between you and your church. We thank you so much for your love and ask that you be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.